Hey everyone, this is Sam, better known as That Girl with the Curls, and I'm recording this just to kind of give you a heads up that the first 14 episodes are essentially, they were previously recorded for the website Word of the Nerd that I used to write for, and as I am no longer a writer for that website, I decided to take my podcast with me uh, to my own website, The Maniacal Geek, and uh, use this as my forum for interviewing people and whatnot and saying things that I want to say, which, you know, hopefully this introduction is getting that across. If not, I apologize. So uh, you will hear this on every recording for the first 14. After that, there will be different recordings, uh, just kind of, you know, intros, basically, to whomever's on the podcast. So if you're hearing this for the umpteenth time, please skip ahead. Uh, if not, uh, just enjoy the rest of the show, and I hope you keep listening and come back for more. All right, thank you so much, and uh, have fun with this episode. wonderful host or lovely host. Uh, I don't have a good intro in mind, so I'm just winging it here. Obviously, you can tell. See, it's not just but, me who fails on coming up with something clever to open a show with. It's Shut up. I'm tired. <laughs> you, you'll recall my co-host, usually on DC Confidential, uh, JP. JP, say hello to the uh, listening audience. Hello, everybody. There you go. And we are joined today by a fantastic writer and artist that I met at Emerald City Comic Con, because I'm trying to get as many people as possible on this podcast from Seattle. <laughs> uh, he is the writer of Skull Kickers, Samurai Jack, uh, and uh, the most recent announcement with Wayward, which we will get into. Uh, please welcome to the show, Jim Zub. Jim, say hello. Yeah, hello, everybody. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate yeah. it. Samurai Jack. Good. <laughs> I'm just going to randomly do that all through the show. That's all good. Have a little oh, theme yeah. song going in the background. Jack, Jack, Jack. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we'll just get into Samurai Jack now because sure. I, I um, so when you, you're doing this for IDW, mm-hmm. uh, did they approach you on that one or did you like um, make a pitch for it? Uh, I put together a pitch. It was actually like a, like a, uh, I don't know, like a fight pit. There were uh, there were about seven different writers that pitched for Samurai Jack, and from what my editor told me, I was the Johnny Come Lately. I was the last person to put in a pitch. So uh, Carlos Guzman, who's my editor uh, at IDW, we had talked about working on a different project uh, a year earlier, and the timing just never came together, and the schedule didn't end up working out. But we had a lot of fun sort of talking and and you know expressed a desire that we wanted to work together on something at some point. And so when my schedule opened up, I emailed him out of the blue, and the timing was really fortuitous because he said, well, I don't have anything really on tap except we got the, the license for Samurai Jack, and we're accepting pitches, uh, but I would need yours in, like, the next couple days. Uh, are you interested at all? And I said, actually, I'm, I'm very interested. I love that show. I was a big fan. Uh, I don't mind a competitive pitch as long as I know that that's what I'm going into. The last thing you want to do is enter a project and think, you're going to be the guy, and then you find out there are, like, seven other people, you know, all doing the same thing you thought you were doing. But uh, but I knew going in that was sort of the case, and uh, I just pitched the best story I could. This is what I wanted, you know, to do, and this is how I felt, really what was at the heart of the series and what made it work. 
and sent it in. And because it, it was a competitive pitch, I kind of divorced that in my mind that I would even get it. Like I kind of just went into it and said, well, that's what I would do. And if they like it, then that's good. And if they don't, well, I did the best I could. And I sort of mentally, you know, sent it off and, and focused on my other project stuff. And about a month later, he called me up and said, it's yours. And I, I was absolutely stunned uh, and thrilled, obviously. And so we were supposed to do a, um, a five-issue miniseries, uh, which has quickly blossomed thanks to strong sales and great word of mouth from, from uh, Cartoon Network fans. So we're now doing a minimum of 15 issues, and uh, the hope is that we're going to continue uh, well beyond that as well. That's, that's fantastic, actually. I mean, um, and I think I, I, I told you this at, at Emerald City when I met you, uh, that, I mean, it feels like the cartoon. I mean, it, it, and, and that's hard to do in terms of medium sure. transfer, you know, obviously. But, like, I love that each issue begins with the opening intro to the, to the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just hear uh, Mako, like the, the late, great Mako's um, voice in your head. Oh, big time. Um, yeah, and, and even just the dialogue from Jack, it's, it's like I can hear Phil Lamar's voice. Actually, um, it's funny you mention that. Um, I was at a show in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks after Emerald City, and mm-hmm. Phil and I had been emailing back and forth a few times. And he was very nice and promoted the book on Twitter. And I finally got to meet him in person at Washington, D.C. at this show called AwesomeCon. And we had a great conversation. And we have a plan now. The next time we're at a con together, we want to do a panel where he does a live reading of the comic, uh, which would be pretty much the best thing I could imagine. That would be so amazingly epic. Yeah, absolutely. So we would just, like, pull it up on Comixology and do the panel-by-panel read, and, and he would go through it. Uh, yeah, that would be pretty much the best thing ever. So, you know, you get that kind of uh, really great feedback from, from Cartoon Network and from Phil and from all these people that are involved, you know, Gendy and the, the gang. And uh, I, I feel very, very lucky to be, you know, very fortunate to be involved with it. So I have to ask, what was meeting Gendy like? I've never met Gendy in person. So, uh, really? you know, we've, got, we've gotten approvals uh, on the stuff from Cartoon Network and from Gendy. And Andy Suriano, who's the main artist on the series, and obviously right. he was one of the original designers from the, from the show. So he, you know, talks to Gendy and, and, you know, they know what we're doing over at Cartoon Network as well. And so, but I've never met him in person. So I would love to, obviously, at some point. And, uh, but he's done all the covers for the series and he's been very encouraging. And, you know, um, he, he's really, really busy right now. Like he's directing uh, a sequel to Hotel Transylvania, and then there's talk that he's going to be doing the Popeye movie, and there's a bunch of other stuff he's got lined up. So, uh, you know, he's a hard guy to get a hold of at the best of times, I think, because he's so in demand. And so being able to work on Jack and to carry it on in a way that is, you know, respectful to the series and really in line with what they were doing on the production team, you know, it, it's a great, great feeling. Yeah, and those, uh, and that five issue uh first arc where you know he's he's trying to i mean it's just it's it feels so much like the cartoon like i said where he gets so close and yet you know so he just can't quite get home and do exactly what he needs to um it's just so indicative of what the show was about where you're like ah no ah dang it thank you (laughs) so much like and it's um it feels really good um, when people pick up uh, the, the trade paperback of the Threads of Time, which is our first five issues collected, uh, comes out in, in late June. And when people pick it up, there's actually my original pitch document in the back 
of the uh, of the trade. And I think people will be surprised how it just reads almost exactly like what we ended up doing. That's what really surprised me was when I pitched it, I pitched uh, the storyline, the Threads of Time was part of my original pitch. And I said, this is how we could really, you know, kick it off and, and bring people back to that core idea of what the series was all about while moving things forward and showing new, you know, sort of challenges. And, uh, and Cartoon Network, that's exactly what they wanted us to do. And so we really carried through on that original pitch. I, I'm actually shocked when I, when I looked at the trade paperback and I reread that document. I mean, I wrote it, but I still feel weird rereading it and realizing that that's pretty much exactly what we did for those first five issues. That's what Andy drew, and that's what we carried through on storyline-wise. So, um, I, I, and I don't take that for granted. Like, I feel very... Uh, kind of amazed even now when I look at it, how smooth it's been, you know, as we work away on the series. So I, I, I do have to ask a question sure. because I, I think Jack is such an interesting personality because um, mm-hmm. he's so stoic and yet he, he has these brilliant moments where he's just really funny or, or he, he says something just really like right on point, Right. And, but I would think that as a writer, is he a lot of fun to write or is someone like Aku or the Scotsman just because of their personalities more enjoyable or more dynamic to get into? Um, I mean, it was definitely a challenge uh, because, uh, you know, if you read my other work, I like doing dialogue and I like doing banter. And of course, there's one thing that Jack doesn't do is talk very much. Right. Uh, and so that was really kind of a learning curve for me where uh, when you work on any licensed property, you need to do your due diligence, your research. And so it was very important to me that we that it sounded right and that it felt right. Uh, when I wrote the very first issue, um, I actually went back and I ended up cutting out a bunch of dialogue because I realized that I had had him talking too much or that I was over explaining things that Andy had very elegantly shown in the artwork and we didn't have to verbalize it. And so it's really about, I think that Jack is a wonderful quintessential, you know, stranger in a strange land character. And his purpose is to be that stoic center and everything crazy sort of whirls around him. Uh, And that's what makes him so compelling and so interesting is that he pretty much stays the same, but everything, the challenges he's put up against new environments and new, uh, you know, places and and things he's going to fight against. That's what makes it so interesting is seeing how he's going to deal with, the unknown that he gets put into. And so obviously I love writing the characters around him. And when I can introduce a character that we can play off of with, with dialogue or with the physicality, writing the Scotsman in issues six and seven was a pure joy because I got to really unleash that kind of verbose, ridiculous kind of affectation in a character's voice. But, uh, but I love writing the whole cast. I love everything about the series and it challenges me and it pushes me to try new things, whether that's storytelling wise or pushing Andy to try really interesting sort of visual things that we can do to, to give it a feeling of action or give it a feeling of atmosphere, uh, pulling back on my natural tendencies to write dialogue and saying, okay, what can we present visually? And that's what, in many ways, it doesn't feel like a, a work for hire project. It feels like this really cool sandbox that we get to play in and we get paid for, and, and it kind of shocks me at times how much fun Andy and I are able to have with it and really run wild with our imagination. And the fact that I've got 
the designer of Samurai Jack, I send him crazy weird story ideas and he gets as excited as I do and then sends me all sorts of design sketches. I just feel like a kid in a candy store. You know, and I, I talked to Andy very briefly at Emerald City as well, and, and just, you know, you're seeing, you know, the cartoon, and even in the comic books, you can you can go wherever you want to, really. I mean, there's no limits on Samurai Jack, as long as it feels, um, I guess, organic to the universe, which could essentially be anything you want it to be. Well, and that's what's so great is when I explain to people, once I, I did research and, uh, on the series, and I was realizing that it is really a genre melting pot, so you've got mythic elements and fantasy elements and magic. You've got science fiction elements and you've got martial arts and you've got these sort of weird episodes that are very cartoony and kind of slapstick. And then you've got other episodes that are quite dark and introspective and everything in between, you know, it it is like, uh, like a Kurosawa movie by way of Hanna-Barbera. It's this very, very strange, (laughs) eclectic mix. And so I feel like, we can get away with so many different types of stories. And then you look at something like issue three, where we had a very sad and kind of dark story. And then two issues later, you know, we've got this big payoff with a coup. And then an issue after that is this bizarro sort of slapsticky story with the Scotsman. And, and I feel like all of it feels like Samurai Jack. None of it feels out of character or out of tone with the series. And that's a very rare kind of property that can extend itself to all those different moods and all those different sort of atmospheres. I think that's sort of the beauty of the of the series, though, both the cartoon and now of the comic book, is that you know it, you can it it really can appeal to such a gamut of of viewers and readers because, you, like you said, there's a moment there's moments where it's just sort of silly and ridiculous and cartoony, and I mean, there's whole episodes, you know, from and you could even do this in the comic book, I'd imagine, but there's whole episodes from the cartoon where there's no dialogue whatsoever. Oh, and it's funny just, you should yeah. mention that. Absolutely. One, one of the, uh, in issue eight uh, coming out, I believe next week, it's a, it's a no dialogue issue. So we gave ourselves a challenge where we would only have sound effects and no dialogue. Um, the issue after that, I don't want to give away too much. Uh, Jack gets pulled into a vortex and so you're going to have to rotate the comic to read parts of it. Like we wanted, as we're going along, I feel like we're getting more bold and kind of experimental in the same way that the show did. If you look at first season, it's a pretty straightforward, I mean, it's, it's such a broad concept, but, you know, Jack meets threats and he fights against them. And then by the right. end of that season, they were doing weird stuff like a coup telling fairy tales, or they would do these bizarre sort of cartoony episodes. And as the show went on, by the time you hit third season, and fourth season, there were these, like, very, very weird ones, you know, uh, Samurai versus Ninja, where they have that absolute mm-hmm. black and absolute white kind of silhouette battle, or I the Haunted that. House episode, where it's got this sort of, like, ink brush, quivering, kind of scary, freakish design that Andy put together. Just things like that, that you could see as they were going on, they were realizing how far they could push things, and how much latitude they really had to create stories and they did so, and they really ran with it. And I think it's only right that we do the same thing. And as we get more confidence, uh, I feel like we're going to be able to try and push other sorts of aspects as well, whether those are visual aspects or storytelling aspects or sequential art kind of uh, neat things we can do to surprise readers and engage them in new and interesting ways. And it's only right. You know, 
um, when I put the pitch together, one of the things I said, and this is one of the things that apparently Cartoon Network really keyed in on about my pitch, was instead of just bringing back characters that you've seen before, I um, stressed that in the show there are almost no returning characters other than, you know, a coup, of course. But in The Scotsman, almost every episode is about going somewhere brand new and interacting with something completely different that we have never seen before. And I felt like we needed to do that in a comic, especially in those first five issues, to really establish that this was real Samurai Jack. It's not just like a bad remix or, you know, a greatest hits album where we're just bringing back all the things you've seen before. But it's really about forging ahead and putting new challenges in front of Jack and, and pushing ourselves to really tell the kinds of stories that they did in the cartoon. And I, I want to get to some of your other stuff, but I have to ask you, mm-hmm. um, do you ever see Jack making it back? Or is the, or there's some of my friends and I have had this debate about the majesty of the show, even though we hated that it was canceled, is that it, it didn't end and that you don't know <clears throat> if he ever gets back or there it's you're sort of left with that right the sort of eternal wanderer right, right. And I, i'm sort of of two minds of the thing i would love to write this as long as humanly possible <laughs> so of course i'm going to say well well no it should never ever end you know i know that there's been talk of gendy wanting to do a movie and wanting to wrap up the story and i know that sometimes fans can get frustrated when they say oh there was never an ending and my sort of response to that is but that doesn't mean that it's not valid. And, and in many ways, that quintessential Stranger in a Strange Land story and that epic sort of journey, it really is about the journey. It's not so much about the ending. And it, I mean, even if they end it and they say, okay, you know, he defeats a coup or he goes back to the past or he saves his family or whatever other things he's going to do, all the different adventures that were along the way are really the point of the thing. Right. And that's really what drives it and makes it so wonderful. And I understand the, that need and that want to, to cap it off, but I don't think that that's the point, if you, if you will. If, if they asked me to end it, I would obviously be honored and I would, you know, I would do the best damn job I could. And if Gendy's ends it in the movie, I'll be thrilled to watch it and see how it all rounds up. But I don't think that, that it requires that in order to be fulfilling. And when you watch a really good episode of Jack and when you see the type of incredible storytelling that they do, I think it holds up on an episodic level. I think it holds up on a mythic sort of broad level as a story concept. And I think that that's what makes it so great. Um, And so, uh, you know, I'm not here to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't take out of their entertainment. But my sort of first response is sort of like, does that mean that it's not enjoyable? You know, is that is that really all it's about is the end and roll the credits or, or is it everything else that we can imbue along the way? Right. It's almost like when you, when you think about how it ends and the fact that there is no actual closure on it, that, you know, aside from the comic books, it can keep going on in your own head. Like you're just like, well, of course he's probably going on more adventures. Right. And everything. I mean, you, you can fill in those blanks if you need to, or write your fan fiction as you, as you see fit. <laughs> sure. Well, and that's the thing is that Jack as a character is so in many ways, so simple, but that's what makes him so great. He is a quintessential hero and he isn't anything more than what he professes to be. And he's heroic. He has flaws at times, but but he is this very stoic sort of strong center and he's tested constantly and at each stage has to sort of push 
deeper to sort of, you know, head into the unknown and triumph. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you mentioned before the before we started the show uh, that you watched a, a, a multitude of episodes, obviously, to get to uh, do your research, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any particular favorites? <laughs> sure. I mean, it's interesting now. I remembered when I, I first saw the series, there were ones that would jump out to me, sort of interesting visual ones or like the big combat episodes. But upon rewatching it, some of the most uh, entertaining ones for me were the really weirdly cerebral ones. So stuff mm-hmm. like the Haunted House episode or Jack versus Mad Jack, where he fights that sort of portion of anger that's pulled out by a coup and then he oh, defeats yeah. it by essentially meditating, you know, like stuff like that that just feels like, holy crap, this is a cartoon for children. Like this stuff is <laughs> incredibly deep and textured in its in its thought process, and I love that about it. Um, I really like the, uh, the Scotsman episodes, of course, and I love the interaction between those two characters and the 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 way that they, you know, this character who seems like he couldn't be more different from Jack, they end up becoming friends and allies in future episodes. I think that that really speaks to, you know, the joy that's at the center of the series. And as much as it is cool and as much as it is action-packed, I think that it is it, there is a joy and an energy that runs beneath it that makes it so fun to watch that you never know sort of what's going to happen next and you never know what kind of crazy challenges Jack can get put into. It's not just about fighting the same enemy. It's about something different every single time. I think it was a, it, it always felt like a cartoon that was ahead of its time Absolutely. as well. Like, I mean, you talked about the, the one where the, the, the black and white play off of each other uh, in the silhouettes during the fight. Like I remember watching that when I was, when I was younger and just being like, there's what, what is going on here? Like, this is just gorgeous. And, you know, playing around with the idea of, you know, a, an entire episode with no dialogue. Like, those are things that cartoons are maybe more or less experimenting with na- with now because they feel like they're, it feels more like they're trying not to treat kids like they're idiots. Absolutely. I mean, it feels like a digital cartoon before there was a lot of digital production going on. That's what's really impressive about it. All those backgrounds are hand-painted. I've seen yeah. tutorial videos of the of, uh, Scott Wills and the guys putting those backgrounds together, but it feels like a flash show. It feels like a like a, a digital show in a time when those digital tools were not as prevalent because it is really forward-thinking, and they're taking stuff um, they, they, they're really they're sort of looking backwards in some ways. So it's got uh, notes of the kind of classic UPA cartoons of the 50s, but it also has this timeless kind of quality of color and mood. You know, there's cartoons, the, the half-hour toy commercials of the 80s and the 90s that feel so horrifically anchored to the specific time that they were created, whether that's because of the music or because of the the fashion or because of the the pop culture trends that they're tying into. And you look at something like Jack and you really, it could come out now and it would be just as big a hit as it was when it came out in 2001. Yeah, I know you're uh... a, it would be good. It's just like you said, it's completely timeless. Absolutely. I, I think there was also a thing where it was like, um, they, they, they wouldn't allow for any like hard black lines either. Like it was all the colors, created where the lines were for everything. And that's a very difficult thing to do as an animator, you know, having the ability to outline the subject and clarify them both in terms of color and in terms of shape. That's a very, you know, fundamental type of assumption 
and not being able to do that, having to put these characters as flat graphic shapes and make sure that they always popped out properly over the background or that they melded with the mood, that's a, from a design perspective, it really is uh, quite a feat. There's a reason why they won multiple Emmys for, you know, for, for the type of uh, art and design that they put into that series. Yeah, and and I know for a fact that you um so you're the director of the Seneca College uh, uh, animation program, is that correct? Yeah, I'm the coordinator of the three year animation program at Seneca, and so uh, my background's in animation. That's what I went to school for, and now I teach you know at the college. So I teach courses in animation history, which is a, a personal favorite. I teach environmental drawing, and I also teach digital painting, depending on the semester, and so. It's funny because, you know, my students are aware that I'm doing comic books as a freelancer most of the time, but I, my heart is really, you know, has been in animation for a long, long time. And so long before, you know, I had this opportunity, I was a big fan of Samurai Jack and uh, being a small part of it now is, is a real thrill for me. What gives you more freedom as a creator? Because I've always heard that the, the wonderful thing about um, comic books is you can literally do anything, right? There's no budgetary cost. Right. But that's somewhat true of animation too. So well, uh, it's sort of changing now. The, with the with the prevalence of digital tools at our fingertips, I mean, it, it's becoming much more ubiquitous for people to be able to work from home or to, to have professional quality tools. You know, on a you can run these programs now on a laptop, whereas it used to be you needed really high end machines and professional editing suites and stuff like that. Now you could literally put together a, a high def show on a laptop in a hotel room around the world. And so it's becoming easier to do animation production, but in terms of the flexibility and the turnaround times, and also, you know, the number of people that are required in, in production, uh, you know, comics are king in terms of the creativity and the, and the ability to, to put out a story in a timely manner. So animation production, even on short films, uh, depending on the complexity and the, the detail involved can take much, much, much longer. And so, uh, yeah, I love being able to, to be so prolific in comics and be able to put out a lot of stories in a relatively short uh, time period, comparatively speaking. Are you seeing more uh, certain trends that are showing up in animation that you're looking forward to or kind of like going, oh, no, maybe we shouldn't be doing that at this point? I love the freedom that's being afforded to people with things like YouTube where you're cutting out the, the previous distribution chains that used to exist. So it used to be about, well, you have to get legitimacy from networks or you had to get a budget from, you know, to get access to the types of professional tools. And now you can just release it yourself. And if it's good quality, it'll go viral. The same thing that's hold, holding true of comics, though, as well. You know, some of the biggest comics in the world are started as web comics or started as digital creators who are just putting their work online passionately for themselves, you know. Uh, and that's, I think it's a wonderful sort of leveling of the playing field. And it becomes a bit more of a meritocracy where the work is at the forefront rather than necessarily, the, you know, where you live or kind of uh, trying to jump through those previous hoops. So it's interesting because uh, I have young kids and um, they're, you know, we had video games as kids and we, we, we played with them as a form of entertainment. But for us, our primary form of entertainment was animation or comic books, right? Right. 
And mm -hmm. so, but my kids, of course, their primary form of entertainment is some sort of game, right? Because they have their Kindles and their, and, and, and all their video game systems and everything they do is some form of a game. So they, they, they view entertainment very differently, even though they still watch cartoons, it doesn't have the same effect on them sure. that, that um, it does on us. And it, I find it, I find it enjoyable that I feel that comic books and animation are going through the same sort of maturation that our generation is going through. And you see so many beautiful, in-depth short stories or, or short films that are coming out. And comic books, too, are, be, are taking a turn where there's just a maturation to them. Well, it's a creator-owned renaissance right now. I mean, I think that's what's so great is that you're realizing that the work can really stand out above and beyond some of the, the previous sort of commercial channels. I mean, obviously, there are huge corporations and entertainment companies, and they have the ability to leverage their brands. But for me as an individual creator, I can get enough bandwidth, I can get enough interest to sort of fuel my ideas and support myself and build up a reading audience that previously would have required that kind of corporate approval or corporate oversight. And it's like, if I, you know, I do projects for big companies and I love it at times, but if I, if I, you know, don't want to, I don't necessarily have to. And that's, what's great is the choice and the flexibility and, right. you know, being able to work on the types of projects that mean something to me rather than feeling like the only way to legitimacy is through, you know, the biggest companies and the biggest brands. So that's an interesting point because now you have Wayward coming, right? Right. What and a great segue. <laughs> and, and look, Samurai Jack has its cult following and I'm Absolutely. firmly part of it, but Buffy is a completely different, realm of responsibility and like pre-established world sure and so you know what is it like when you're because i think you're right there is this creator owned renaissance and i think there's so much more that creators can do we've had people who've come on and who've done both mm -hmm. and i love know, doing both and i love working in both spheres it feels to me like like exercising different muscles when you're working with an established world and you, you step into that sandbox and there's already so much material you can dig into, I think that's very liberating and exciting. But there's nothing quite like having your own ideas and forming them from the ground up. Uh, when I launched Skull Kickers in 2010, and if your listeners have never read it, I hope they do, the way I describe it to people is it's like the, uh, the Hobbit meets the Hangover. And it's, <laughs> it's my love letter to Sword and Sorcery everything I love about earthy kind of sword and sorcery, like Dungeons and Dragons and Conan the Barbarian and Fafford the Grey Mouser, I call it like low class, you know, high fantasy, like this weird kind of troublemakers getting themselves in capers rather than destinied kind of heroes saving the world. And that's kind of what I really love about the fantasy genre is I love all the monsters and, and the, the crazy magic and the setting material, but I have this weird idea of people on the ground level, that they're earthy and they're trouble rather than that they are aspirational per se. Mm -hmm. And so Skull Kickers, I released a, a fantasy action comedy in a market that people told me 
doesn't like fantasy comics and doesn't like funny comics. And, and we did okay because I, we carved out a little niche for ourselves and we found an audience that sort of thought like I do and they read it and they enjoy it. And I slowly but surely built up, you know, my, I don't want to call it a brand, but, but, you know, like a readership right. uh, for the series. And it meant a lot to me to find other people who were into the same kind of stuff that I was. Yeah, we were we talked to uh, uh, Curtis Weeb about Rat Queens recently, and uh, and you know he had the same kind of things to say. Where it's the idea of like because fantasy and the ideas of humor and everything are are so we're kind of like bereft of them in the major companies. Right, right. And you know, it's like you look at DC and Marvel; it gets a bit too dour sometimes. <laughs> sure, and I think that what was great was we were able to build something you know a little bit different at the time, and but that's not everything that I have to say. And so uh, announcing Wayward and really showing people I've got other kinds of stories I want to tell and it's going to be action-packed and it's going to be emotional and it's going to be intense. And I know we in the announcement we used sort of Buffy the Vampire Slayer as kind of shorthand to give people an understanding of where we were going with this. And, and I can sort of describe it as people like, well, this is going to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer style kind of teenagers fighting monsters but they're going to be in Japan taking on Japanese myths and they're going to be dealing with all this cultural stuff and, and sort of, uh, you know, almost like a generational divide. So we get to do kind of like, I don't know, you know, the new mutants meets Japanese, you know, monsters and mythology. And I, and I feel like it's something very different but if you've liked what I've done before, I think you'll key into it. And if you've never read anything I've done, hopefully this is the one that really brings you in the door and shows you that I've got a range, you know, that I can offer. Mm-hmm. When, and uh, so you're doing Wayward, and you, uh, you also have your webcomic, um, Makeshift Miracle. Right. Uh, so you, you um, what I've noticed in some of the projects that you have, like you do skew uh, anime style to a certain degree. Is, is that yeah. a style that you you adhere to a lot that you get you're more drawn to I guess yeah you know when I was in um it's in I've gone through sort of this I joke around that I've gone through like generational nerdity like I grew up on you know on Dungeons and Dragons and Marvel comics and that's why I love characters like you know Doctor Strange and all the supernatural Marvel characters because they were like I get all the cool magic stuff from fantasy but I also get superheroes those guys are the best right so uh, yeah. I loved all that stuff, but then as I was entering high school, I was sort of burning out on the Marvel stuff and the superheroes, and I was kind of like something was missing, and my brother went off to university, and at the time, I know it seems weird now because it's so prevalent, but anime and manga were not a thing, and so he went off to university and took computer programming, and a bunch of the engineers and computer programmers at Waterloo University were from Japan and they brought their comics and their cartoons with them. And they were such, such an incredible variety of genres. And they were such an incredible variety of the type of emotional content and age groups. And it was just a huge spectrum of stuff. And when he came home from university and brought some of that stuff with him, and it was like fan subtitled stuff, or in some cases we were watching just like raw anime and we would have like a piece of paper that was describing what characters' motivations were because there was no translation. So we were like, okay, that guy hates that guy, and they're going to fight. You know, just like <laughs> – but, but you, were, you were so engrossed by 
the broadness of what they were covering. And it was so exotic and different and fascinating. And so that left a real indelible mark on me uh, in terms of what was possible, whether that was comic books or animation. And so in many ways, Makeshift Miracle was kind of like my saying, these are some of the things I really love, or this is like me at 16. I don't know what I want to be, but I love like Vertigo comics and anime drama and sort of taking those elements and kind of weaving them together. And Wayward has a bit of that Japanese flair to it. And I'm not so cocky as to say that we're doing an anime or we're doing a manga because I don't think that we are. And that's not really, it's a supernatural story that's set in Tokyo. It definitely has some of those influences and Steve's art, you know, he lives in Tokyo and he took uh, art school in Japan And so you can see some of those notes obviously coming through in his work. And I love that clean line, beautiful style and the elegant type of design that he has. And so, yeah, anime and manga is an influence, but I'm not here to sort of usurp it so much as it is to say it's part of a broader mix of influences that are coming together to make Wayward something special. Well, you know, and it, 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 I would go back to our conversation about the maturation that we've seen because I, I think as, as we've grown up, what made for good, mature, co- or push the envelope for us when we were younger were those kind of, were the things we were getting from overseas, right? So, um, you know, we didn't really see blood and guts in cartoons until, right. You know, until we started watching anime, um, and now of course they're in all cartoons. So right. <laughs> everybody bleeds. That's that's right. But I mean, to some extent, we always had violence in cartoons, but it would never had that mature sort of reality to it that anime brought along. And I think that that plays very well when you're trying to tell some of these more um, in-depth stories, um, it, which is an interesting contrast. Which has to be an interesting contrast for you because. Now you'll have three titles going on where you've got Samurai Jack, which can sort of go all over the place, but still has a youth to it. Um, and then you've got Skull Kickers, which is clearly a more humorous title and right, sort of free-flowing. And then, you, then now you're going to have Wayward, which from what I'm reading it as, is going to be a little bit more in-depth and serious and and, yeah, uh, it's got a more emotional kind of uh, dramatic core. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be banter and there's going to be sort of interactions where people, funny things are sort of happening. I, I think any story should have contrast. You can't have it dark all the time and you can't right. have it silly all the time. You've got to be able to move emotionally through different kind of scenes and different sort of story beats. But uh, by and large, Skull Kickers is a very silly, you know, ridiculous series. And by and large, Wayward will be a more serious one. But I think that, you know, you're going to hopefully see the the full range over the course of the thing. And, and ideally, you know, if you like what I've done in other series, you'll be on board because you want to see, you know, how this is all going to round out. We've got some cool mysteries planned and the way that things are going to un unveil how things connect together in this series i'm really really proud of of the work that we've been putting together you know um steve is a phenomenal talent and uh you see his work and once you see the interior artwork it's going to blow people away and we're not just sort of saying okay we're going to have all the stereotypes and sort of cliches of tokyo 
because Steve's living in Tokyo, you know, he's like shooting photo reference. And so we've got some specific locations that are taking place and we've got societal stuff that people from who aren't from Japan won't necessarily know anything about. And we're going to sort of be able to introduce to the reader as well. So it's like, Hey, here's what, here's what Japan's really like. And yes, we've got the supernatural story and we've got all this craziness, but the undercurrent is also going to have some truisms there as well. How do you balance that as a writer though? What's your approach? Because, you know, when I'm telling a story and granted, I tend to be long winded and take forever to do anything, Mm -hmm. but, um, I tend to like really sort of fall into whatever mood or emotional state that the story is in. And when you've got, I mean, now comic books are very demanding and you're, you've always got deadlines and things like that. And tell me about it. <laughs> and with three going on, and I've got more than three going on. Okay. So with that three going on, several in the fire. <laughs> And the different tones, how do you, like, are you just schizophrenic all the time? Or is it <laughs> is it that you really do, or do you take time and say, okay, I'm going to write this for, like, um, the next two weeks and get really into this, and then I'm going to set it aside? Or oh, I wish you- I could spend two weeks on one of these. Um, in many cases, it's almost like a, a day-to-day breakdown. So today, you know... I work on a particular script or a story outline or a pitch or a, or whatever, and tomorrow I'm switching gears and changing up the atmosphere to something very very different. And so, um, at this point, I am at this moment writing seven different comic books. Ooh, and oh my so, wow! <laughs> it's a little bonkers right now. My wife is very patient, um, and so uh, uh, it really is about. Uh, on any particular day I'm switching gears and so I'll get myself into a particular headspace or I've got the outline approved and I've got a what I call a pacing breakdown sheet of what every scene is going to be in this particular issue and all the relevant information that needs to be imparted in order for the plot line to move forward and then I break it down scene by scene and I start scripting and I get that into that headspace and you just got to dig in. And so you're trying to get the character voices correct. You're trying to make sure you're imparting enough information for the artist. And then as, as you finish it, it's almost like you're playing through the little film in your mind. And I go back and as I read the dialogue, I will honestly read the dialogue out loud so that I know that it sounds like it's coming out of that character and then it feels like dialogue that characters could be speaking back and forth to each other. It could be a little bit weird. I'm sure my wife comes by the office or whatever and, uh, you know, I'm writing a story and I've got characters sort of talking back and forth, but you, you, it's a way for you to check what you've written because in your head it can sound okay, but when you actually try and speak it, you're like, that doesn't sound like something someone would even say that just feels like you just pulled out the thesaurus and you're just sort of unloading it on the page, you know? And so as much as possible, I want it to have naturalistic dialogue and I want it to feel, you know, the skull kickers obviously doesn't have to sound like reality. These characters are in a fantasy setting, but within the scope of their personality and within the scope of what's required of the story, I want it to feel right and to feel like it could could be spoken. And so that's kind of my process on it. And outlining and story building takes me longer than scripting. Once I hit the script phase, I've sort of worked through most of the story problems and I know where it's going to go. And at that point I can, I can haul ass a little bit and, uh, and really get it done. 
So, uh, yeah, when I take on a new project, story building is what slows me down. It's scripting is it's not easy, but it's it's sort of the quickest section of the of the of the story process. Sam, do you like um, having? I mean, you have seven going on now. Do you like having that many, or do you prefer uh, like a little? It's a little much. <laughs> I could I could stand to lose three of them probably, and I would be a little bit. I don't want to say happier. I, everything I'm working on right now is things I want to be writing, so I'm not displeased in the slightest, and I'm not here to make any, I'm sure if someone listening to this podcast, oh, boo-hoo, the guy's got seven projects. Wow. Where's my violin Yeah, for yeah, it's, it's real tough there, Zubbo, you know, but um, <laughs> yeah, it can be a little bit overwhelming and frustrating at times because when you're writing on a book, you're not just writing the script. You're dealing with, especially on creator-owned, you're dealing with all the other sections of, of the creative process because you are intimately involved with production. But but if you're doing a work for a hire project, you're dealing with editorial and approvals. And so either way, there's a barrage of communication in and around every single issue, whether that is the pitch and the approval, the the scheduling, um, you know, dialogue proofing or color proofing or writing solicitation and ad copy or doing press. Uh, for the thing. And so every one of these projects is sort of its own vortex of, of things that need to get done. And your email inbox is constantly being pummeled with things that will take you away from sitting at the keyboard and writing. So as much as you want to just sit there and go for the next four hours, I'm going to script, you're just getting this unending stream of communication that is required because decisions are being made and people are asking your opinion or they want things. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's all part and parcel of the creative process. But I think people um, may not realize how much of that sort of happens. And so your day ends up getting fragmented into these little segments where you steal away the moments to be able to work creatively. So it's like I woke up first thing this morning and we put the final touches and approval on the press release that was going to go out at noon for my new series announcement. And uh, I made sure I had all my files in place so that as soon as it was announced, I could have it up on my blog and on Twitter and everything ready to go. And then I'm answering emails because we have an issue going off to press on Friday. So I had to make sure that that was all ready to rumble. I had, um, you know, another lettering proof for an issue that's going to press next week. I had an outline that I needed to finish and send off. I have, um, you know, just this, this constant sort of thing. And then this afternoon, I basically turn off my internet for a few hours so I can get some writing done. And then I turn it back on and it's just like a tidal wave of really, thankfully, great messages from people who are excited about the new series and tweets and Facebook messages and all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, I'll probably dig my way out of that by about midnight tonight. So. Well, and I imagine as the, because the thing with the process of writing a comic book is that you are essentially the director of right. this, of, of the show, essentially. Because, I mean, you write everything. You're the one calling the shots in terms of screen time. And there is a measure of collaboration, obviously, between sure. you and the editors, you and the, and the artists. But you're the one who has to make those final decisions. And I can imagine it's it's completely overwhelming, especially if you have several going at the same time. Yeah, and it, you get into a groove on it, and obviously with each book, you build up a relationship. So Edwin and I, working on Skull Kickers together, 
We've been doing this since 2010. I mean, we know each other very, very well, and the trust has been built up. So my scripts for him are much shorter and terser. They're like shorthand almost because we know where we're going with the story, and many of these scenes are scenes that we've been building up to for a while, and it's really a matter of, of us. You know, that relationship is so tight. Something like Wayward, Steve and I have never done a project before, and we're really thrilled and enthusiastic, but it's about building those processes so it's like I'm, you know, we're doing lettering proof. Even though the issue doesn't come out until August, we've got the first issue already drawn, which is incredibly early, especially for a creator-owned book. But I love having that because we've been trying out different dialogue fonts and we've been trying out different sort of layouts and even coming up with the logo and the graphic design, being able to spend time on that in a way that normally you don't have the the luxury to do so. It feels really good. It feels like, I've learned stuff over the last four years that I can really bring to bear on a new series. Not to say that Skull Kickers is not something I'm proud of, because obviously I am. But, mm -hmm. you know, everything you do, the next thing you do, hopefully, is informed by all that you've learned from the previous experiences. Yeah, so I will tell you this. If you survive this, <laughs> not only will I officially theme you a superhero, but I also think you'll need to just introduce comic book writing classes into your curriculum so we can all <laughs> worship at the altar. Oh, stop. That <laughs> it's fun. Like, it's fun. It's funny. I have a lot of, if your uh, listeners check out my blog, which is jimsub.com, I've got a series of tutorials all about how to pitch a story and script format and, and some of my thoughts on on how to do this stuff, but it's not even like a, this is the only way to do stuff. It's really just a, these are things that have worked well for me. And if you find them useful, then use them. And if you don't, well, then I have nothing else to tell you. And I think that that's how I would do a class anyways. I would sort of go, well, that's how I do it. And if they said, well, that doesn't work for me, I'd be like, man, I don't know what to tell you. I, uh, I'm going to go back and do it my way. Sorry, I can't help you. You know, like everyone's process is kind of different. And I love talking to other people working in the business and, and listening to the way that they do things, partially so I can hopefully learn even better ways and kit bash from their processes, but also because I think it's, it's creativity. And so there are multiple solutions to any problem. And I think that that's one of the things that's exciting about it. Lena, and, and just even speaking to that, um, I actually use your tutorial to uh, to write a script. Um, I did a, a pitch for an anthology about, oh, cool. um, yeah, stories for uh, based on the works of, of Queen, the band. Right. And uh, it got a, it got approved, and then I wrote the script, and I used actually your website to uh, kind of figure out how to do it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was really helpful because you're, I mean, you're very honest, you're very forthcoming with how this works, how that works. Um, so I, I thank you because of you, I, you know, I got, I got, I'm going to be a, a published, you know, uh, author. Well, that's fantastic. I, you know, one of the things that's been really useful and people ask me, they're like, oh, you know, I read your tutorials and it, it, it's actually grown quite a bit. Over the last year, the number of people have come up to me at conventions and they said, I'd never read your work before, but someone directed me to your website and I started reading about the how-to stuff and then I wanted to read your work. And so, you know, I can't deny that that's pretty darn happy making when someone says that they found my work and that they're following it, however they found it. So if, mm -hmm. if people find my work through the tutorials and then they want to see how I write and read my stories, that's great. The original reason why I did it was 
I was receiving a lot of questions from people about how to break into the business, how to do stuff. And I felt weird. I didn't want to ignore it. It's not in my nature. Um, I didn't want to give them a pithy answer. And I didn't also want to waste a ton of time constantly telling people, you know, the same information. So it was in some weird ways like a time-saving measure. And it was also like like a good for my conscience because then I, I, I did what I said I was going to do. And so and it was also a way for me to codify my thoughts on what I was doing because there was stuff that I think I was doing on an unconscious level that once I had to explain to someone what I was doing made it clearer to me as well. So putting my thoughts down and saying, this is why I do that. Oh, this is why I do that. And really (laughs) walking through it and typing it out and organizing my thoughts was a really useful tool for me. And then having it in that spot, almost like I frequently asked questions. So now every time someone asks me, that'd be so cool. I wish I could make my own comic. How do I do that? I just go, go over here because because then I don't have to retype it and I don't have to re figure it out, you know, and it's not 140 characters that says work hard or something like that. You know, it's like I can actually point them towards something relatively robust that says, this is what I know about this thing. And if you find it useful, great, you know? And so, uh, as, as much as it has been a lot of work to pull together, I'm thankful that I did. And I'm really glad that people have gotten something out of it. The The posts that people probably responded to the most were the economic ones, which sounds really weird. People were like, man, I sure love your pie charts. But, you know, <laughs> to, to be honest, I think a lot of creators, especially in creator-owned comics, they're afraid to talk about money and they're afraid to talk about the economics of the business because they don't want to come across as anything less than successful. And the reality is, is that creator-owned comics is a really tough uphill battle, and there's far, far, far more books that are not successful than are. And as much as Skull Kickers is a name now, it has not always been, and isn't necessarily even a huge moneymaker, it's more about we've done a really good job of getting the name out there, and that's become a baseline for me as a proof that I could write and that I could deliver on what I was, you know, finishing a project. If you looked at the dollars and cents of it, you'd say, okay, Skull Kickers is marginally profitable, but certainly not. You can make a living at it just doing that one book. But if you look at all the other freelance work and the opportunities that I've had the fortune to be involved with, those all built from doing Skull Kickers and proving myself and having that body of work that people could point to and go, that's the person we want to work for us. And so uh, if anything, I think that that's proof that not only people should make things, but that they should go in with their eyes open and make what they want to make and make it in the way that they feel, you know, tell the kind of stories that they want to tell. Because now when I get hired, I get hired to do stuff like Skull Kickers. I get hired to do things whether it's sword and sorcery stuff or fun action, because that's the stuff I love to write. You know, I didn't sit back and try and figure out, well, what pop culture Frankenstein monster can I pull together to try and impress people? It was like, I'm going to write a story that if I was a reader, I would be crazy about. And then now I get hired to write that kind of stuff and get paid for it. And that feels very gratifying. When you, uh, you, you did the uh, Amanda Waller one shots for DC. Right. And which I I really enjoyed because I've I've had my issues with how they've been treating Amanda Waller in the New Fifty Two, 
And so when I went into the one shot, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm trying, I'm right. going to try. Uh, but you, I'm not even kidding. You made me care about Amanda Waller again. And well, I can't thank you enough for that one. Cause I really loved her. And then they kind of, they kind of, I mean, not ruined, but skewed things. I away. And, and you know, and here's the thing too, is it's like, I'm not even saying that, that, you know, people like one thing I've written, they have to re- read and enjoy everything I've done. You know, mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the great things about this business is you can have all sorts of different variety of materials. And I love superheroes and I'd love to write more superhero stuff, but it was a unique challenge because you've got not only the legacy of these characters, but you've also got this new vision of them with the new 52. And that's a tough sort of balance to strike. And so I, I wanted to write a story that I would be, proud of but that also fulfilled the requirements that they needed and those are the types of creative challenges that you wouldn't generally give yourself you know what I mean your fan fiction has far less strident you know rules and and regulations than than the editorial powers that may be and I don't find that you know obviously it can be difficult at times but I I enjoy the challenge and I enjoy interacting with uh, you know, the editors and the companies and the artists, like I want to, to push myself and to try new things. You know, the stuff that we do in Samurai Jack, they're not the kinds of stories I would have told myself, but now that I'm writing them, I'm so proud that I'm, that I'm doing it. And the stuff that I've done with DC, I did a Legends of the Dark Knight story last year. Mm-hmm. I got to write classic Harley Quinn. And that was like, <laughs> almost like bucket list kind of stuff for me, because that was the character that I love so much. And probably the best part of that entire process was when it was all finished and the first uh, half came out. And on my birthday, I got a, an email message from uh, Paul Dini and he said, hey, Jim, I read your Harley story and you did a great job. Happy birthday. I hope you have a great day. Oh, and I was cool. like, man, I don't even need any gifts or anything right now. I just got the best birthday present ever. I can go back to bed and be completely happy the way it is. So They're like, but we have this bag of money for you. You don't want like, yeah, no. Yeah, right. Paul Dini just, just like, great. That's crazy, right? Like it was just a real weird, surreal kind of feeling to realize that that we, you know, um, Neil Gouge and I, who put together that Legends of the Darkness story, that we'd done right, that we that we did a the best job we could do, and it, that. You know, someone who's so integral, the, the creator of Harley Quinn, really felt like we'd done it justice. You know, that's a great feeling. It's very cool. When when I finally got to meet, you know, Samurai Jack launched in late October last year, and I was already done my convention schedule. And so I didn't get to meet any of our fans really until Seattle. And so we had six issues out before I got to meet the readers of Samurai Jack. And people are bringing up, you know, six issues and alt covers and their excitement and their, their energy for what we're doing was, was really eye-opening to me. You know, I don't write stories to autograph comics. I write stories because I love telling stories. But, you know, I'd be a fool if I, if I you know, lied to you and I didn't enjoy it. I do, I do love meeting people. I love hearing that people are enjoying what I do, you know. And so uh, I'm, I'm thankful that I get to work on stuff that people are excited about. I always tell people, and you know, this probably plays into your economics comments from earlier, that nobody has ever gotten rich in comics. Um, right. It, well, that's entirely true. Well, there might be a 1% <laughs> in the normal universe. There's probably a 0.5% in the comics universe. 
Like there's a lot of people that really care and write wonderful stories and do beautiful art that never, never make a single dollar on it. Right. So it's not, it's not like you're going to break into comics and you're going to get rich. But to me, the beauty of comic books and, and all of these things that we do is the payoff is in the community and the payoff is in the fact that um, when someone reads something you write or when someone cares about your website or listens to your podcast and they come back and they say, you know, that was awesome and it made my day better, particularly if it's someone that you then look up to, um, there's just that community payoff that I think is the majesty of the whole thing. Um, and if I ever do am lucky enough to write something that other people really care about, that's the moment that I look the most forward to because that yeah, I think absolutely. is special. You know, uh, Gail Simone had a really cool sort of a Twitter thing that she did uh, last week, I think it was, and she was asking writers, she said, what's the most, you know, what's the best part of the job? And oh, yeah. I said, to, uh, the, the response I had to her, I said, the fact that I can create something and have people who I've never met in places that I've never been and may never go, and they respond to it. They respond to it emotionally, and they get excited they're excited about it and that I feel that we have a connection, even though I've never met them and may never meet them, you know, that my work can travel farther than I can ever go. And I feel that that is something so cool about entertainment, about storytelling is that your stories will live on and your ideas can live on. And I think that that's something really incredible about, about that whole experience, you know, um, and the more that I do, the more I really appreciate that, you know, the the idea that I'm interacting with people and that we're building something together or the artist that I'm collaborating with. You know, Steve, the guy who's drawing Wayward, he lives just outside of Tokyo. And so almost every weeknight we jump on Skype and we talk for a little bit. He's having breakfast and I'm getting ready to go to bed. And when I wake up the next morning, it's like the elves have done the artwork, like there's a new page and he's cranking away on stuff. And it's this really neat thing that we're crossing the ocean and working away on this together, you know, uh, with Skull Kickers. It's like I'm here in Toronto and Edwin is in New York and our colorist is in Chicago and our publisher is in Berkeley, California. And it's just like it's all just emails and digital bits. And together we build something, you know, and I feel that that is such a cool aspect of this industry and something that's really changed. You know, when I was a kid, you know, in order to work at Marvel Comics, you pretty much had to be in New York City. You know, that's why John Romita and all those guys drew New York. That's why all the superheroes are in New York, because that was their neighborhood. And now it's really a, a global thing. And it's about such a broader series of influences. And that's what I think is really empowering and strengthening about the industry right now is that it has opened up with new voices and new ideas coming from all over the place. Well, I think also like what you're saying with the, the digital revolution essentially has um, has made it, I think, just easier for people to kind of get the confidence as well to, to start writing what they want to write because the industry is so different now. It's It's gotten to a point where it's like, whatever you're going to do, you might as well just do it. Um, I think Neil Gaiman said that about the publishing industry. He's like, there's no right way to do it anymore. Just, right, right. Just go for it. Well, you know, make that idea happen. There used to be a sense that, you know, self-publishing or creator-owned work was like 
because you couldn't get in with the big boys. You know what I mean? There was this right. sense of like a holding pattern until they offered you the gig doing whatever, you know, superhero or thing you wanted to do. And it's no longer about that. There are there are kids who are growing up and web, they're reading web comics and then they're making their own web comics. Their desire, their end goal is not to write Superman. You know, their end goal is to tell stories that mean something to them. The first comics they might have read is Scott Pilgrim and then they read some manga and then they read some web comics and they just they just love the medium and they love storytelling. You know, I was at the Toronto Comic Arts Festival over the weekend here in town. And it's one of my absolute favorite shows because it's about creators and their work. And don't get me wrong, I love conventions and I love the spectacle, but there's something really nice about going to a show where there were no cosplayers and there were no like washed out wrestlers and there was no <laughs> like I, you know, and that stuff's really fun and toys and video games and all that stuff is great. But I got to tell you, there was something really nice about going to a show where it was like every person there loves books and they love art and they wanted to look at the work and talk about the work and interact with it first and foremost. And it was such a, a great experience. And I love that show to bits because it is so singular and people were there for comics and everyone you talked to wanted to know about your creation and they didn't have any biases. They weren't just like, it wasn't just like a name brand that they needed in order to feel fulfilled. They wanted to discover things. And that's what makes that kind of show, you know, really cool. And when I meet people at conventions, if I can pitch them on my idea and they like it and they discover it and they come back, you know, and they say, this is now something that they're reading. That's the best kind of connection you can make with someone at a convention where you, you've found a new reader and brought them on side, you know? Well, I can honestly say that just in talking to you, I can feel your excitement coming through, and it Thanks, makes man. me more excited about reading your stuff. So sweet, sweet. Well, I, that's, that, I mean, that's ideal, right? Uh, yeah. Inverted. It, it's nice because you know it's nice to have some. The more passionate I think, when you get to meet creators, I think the more passionate they are about it, the more passionate it makes you as a fan. Absolutely. Because you know, I talk to some of the people and they're like, man, you're like a relentless promotion machine. And I sort of say, well, if I'm not excited about it, why, why the hell should anyone else be like, <laughs> God, if I'm not pleased, like, I'm not saying that I, I don't make mistakes or that sometimes I don't go, man, I could have done that better. But at the end of the day, you got to be enthusiastic. You got to put yourself into it and, and make it something that you're going to enjoy because that's going to carry through in the work and it's going to carry through to your readers, I think as well. Well, that's what I really enjoy about conventions too. I mean, especially Emerald City is is getting bigger and bigger by the you know every year. But what I really enjoy about it is that it does emphasize creators and um, the the comic book industry a bit more than the media frenzy that like um, San Diego has become. Sure. Uh, and 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 I know that that is debatable with some people. I've had conversations where like, oh, Emerald City's getting there, where they're gonna they're gonna start focusing on this, where Hasn't happened yet, guys. Come on. We're okay. <laughs> well, and, you know, I feel like those, those mid-sized shows where they're able to get sort of the, the general public in the door, but that they're also still pretty focused on comics are, are really crucial to the growth of the industry. And, you know, sometimes I'll talk to other creators and they're like, oh, man, you know, I don't know how we're going to compete against whatever actors or whatever other stuff is going on. And I'm like, look, you know, we've got something really unique. We've got our own creations here and, 
you can present. It's not just about like the whole package is right there. You can start reading this thing. I'm the person that made it. You can ask me questions about it and you can really build a bond with people at a show. And I really do enjoy that kind of element of it. It's not always easy. You know, you, you are trying to sell stuff at the end of the day, but, but I think it can be a really great way to, to do outreach. And I think it can be a really uh, creatively stimulating way to meet other creators and to interact with artists and to just remind yourself that there's so much cool stuff out there. There is, there is a need for more comics focused shows. I, I just, I, I'll tell you, one of the shows that we've got done repeatedly is the site, like people from the site get together to go do, um, because we're all sort of located in the Southeast, is um, Dragon Con. And it's a beautiful show, and Atlanta turns into this wonderful place for it, except the comics portion is in this little tiny room in a little tiny basement. And, I, you know, I just... It drives me crazy because to me that's that's where it started, right? It wasn't it wasn't TV and movies that started all these things. It was comic books, and so I'm like, why aren't we celebrating that more? So like, right. you know, when Read Pop comes out with special edition NYC, or you've got like um, Heroes Con and those kinds of shows, I get really excited because it's it's about the comic books. Absolutely, and I think what's really neat though is you've got a, a public now that even if they're not regular comic readers, they are becoming more and more aware that comics as a source material or comics as a, a viable medium for their storytelling and entertainment is is available. And so there are people that I can tell the difference where I can pitch them a comic, and they probably wouldn't have been interested a year ago, two years ago. But now, you know, thanks to things like your Scott Pilgrim or your Walking Dead or the Avengers movies, now they're they're even open to the idea that they can try this stuff out. And if you tell them, hey, I've got this new thing and you can get in on the ground floor and it's a neat idea and the art looks good, give it a shot. What's the harm? And I'm right here and I can autograph it for you and let's get this started. I think that that's, it's a really kind of a neat time, both in terms of the medium as a whole and as, you know, as the creative possibilities that are open to us. Definitely. No, and, um, I, I think that's a really good place to stop, actually, because we've been going for about an hour and a half now. Sweet. And, and it's been effortless talking to you, Jim. <laughs> you're, well, I, I appreciate that because sometimes you don't want to be like you're pulling teeth, but you're, you're a fountain of information. I love that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. So yeah. I, hope uh, I hope your listeners enjoy you know, the stuff we covered. And um, like I said before, if they want to find out more about what I'm doing, they can check in with jimsub.com. I've got um, – quite a few projects on the go, as I mentioned before. <laughs> Lots of reading material to keep people out of trouble. We've got plenty there, guys. And uh, where can they find you? Um, they can find you on Twitter as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's just Jim Zub, uh, J-I-M-Z-U-B on Twitter. And then it's J-I-M-Z-U-B.com for my own website. That's pretty much the, the easiest ways to find out what I'm up to. And I'm updating both of those all the time. I think almost every comic creator is on Twitter now. So lots yeah. of chatter back and forth about what's going and little art previews and, and new announcements. In terms of release schedule of stuff, um, so Skull Kickers, our fifth arc, is currently underway, and our new issue should be coming out, I believe, uh, next week is uh, is our next issue. Uh, Samurai Jack number eight is also next week. 
Um, we've got uh, the Pathfinder series for Dynamite, uh, City of Secrets. I think that comes out next week. I think I've got three comics on the stands on Wednesday. That's kind of cool. coming out next week, Woo-ha. apparently. Um, in June, I've got the Disney Kingdom's Figment series that I'm doing for Marvel and Disney. And that starts up. The first issue comes out next month. Um, I've got, oh, man, it's getting a little crazy now. Uh, You've got seven projects going. Yeah, you yeah. Need to know it's a little mental, out. right? Uh, well, the weird thing is, is that I don't, uh, I don't need to know when it comes out. Once I send it off to the printer, I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> For me, it's always weird, right? Because it's like uh, Samurai Jack number eight's coming out in stores, but I'm writing number twelve, and so that's yeah. really my focal point. It's like Figment number one is coming out, but I'm writing number five. It's like that's where my brain is sort of sitting. There, there are times when I'm in the thick of deadlines, and people will literally tell me. Oh, I bought your book today, and I'm like, oh, that's out? Like, I didn't even – because in my mind, I'm five months ahead. I'm six months ahead, you know? Like, I'm working on Wayward number two and three, and number one doesn't come out until August, you know? I'm writing a book that doesn't – right now that doesn't come out until December that hasn't been announced. I don't think it will get announced till the end of the summer. It's like that kind of stuff is where my head's at. Once it's it's at the printers, I can't do anything about it anymore. It's going to come out, and people are going to love it or hate it. At that point, I it's out of my control, so I'm sort of focused in a different spot. But anyways, all the different no, stuff I have coming out, people can find out about it via, um, you know, via my website. Well, when you're when you're ready to announce your twelfth concurrent project, <laughs> come on back and, and we'll Sweet. review them each individually, and it, it'll be a five-hour podcast that day. Sounds great. I'm totally down for it. <laughs> Thanks for all the support, guys. I really appreciate it. We appreciate it, too. JP, where can people find you as well? Well, you can find me the same place you always find me. Where right. the nerd... You can find him on Twitter. He's on Word of the Nerd That's online every that. once in a while. And you can also find me at Darling underscore Sammy on Twitter and my blog, The Maniacal Geek, uh, as well as the various reviews and uh, ranty articles that I do for wordofthenerdonline.com. Well, and make sure to check us out on iTunes, give us lots of stars, share us with your friends, because it's very important mm-hmm. if you want to keep listening to us. We want to know that you do it. So make sure yeah. you do that. And, um, of course, you can tweet the show at The Nerd Online, or you could tweet, of course, Sam and I at DC Confidential underscore. Um, so make sure you do that so we know you're out there. And so, uh, once again, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, JP, thank you for being here as well uh, for Sam speak, Speaks. I speak. Whatever. Uh, that's going to be my tagline. Whatever. Um, this is Sam. And thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night.